Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, Putin responds to Prigozhin, the founder of the Wagner Mercenary Force. What happened there? Also, fighting to save the life of WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange, now facing a potentially deadly extradition to the U.S. And how close is the world to a nuclear conflagration? All this and more coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine, and we are happy to have you along today. Uh, and uh, we're also happy to be joined <laughs> by uh, the uh, editorial director of The Nation magazine, Katrina Vandenhuvel, who knows a great deal about what's uh, been going on in Russia. We're delighted to have her. She's got a new piece in The Nation, Putin, Perosin, uh, and uh, Russia's future. And, um, well, Katrina, it's been a very interesting weekend. Uh, and let's talk about what happened and then perhaps Putin's response and where this might go from here. So how about a little bit uh, of background on the uh, renegade army? For you, where did this begin? I know it didn't begin just a couple of days ago. No, thank you, Dennis. I'm not sure you say I know a lot. I'm not sure anyone knows a lot. I uh, submit I may have more questions than answers at this point. It's a murky, okay. moving picture complex. But um, where did this begin? I would suggest it began in the Yeltsin era to some extent. Um, the de-democratization of Russia began under Boris Yeltsin, the creation of an oligarchical state of which Prigozhin is a key oligarch in this situation. Putin created his own oligarchs. But the privatization of so much, including militaries, was it, you know, something we saw the prefiguring of uh, with Chechnya, Yeltsin launching the first war. But to this moment, Prigozhin is a creature of Putin's. Your listeners may recall he was identified as Putin's chef. Uh, but he has, over the last few years, formed this private military formation called the Wagner Group, which is has its, you know, army, as we know, but an army that is spread out in Syria in Mali, Central Africa. It's heavily consumed with extractive industries, as you know, China and those parts. Uh, and it's, uh, it's been led by Prigozhin for the last few years. And of course, the other key moment your listeners will understand is the Ukraine war, but not the war so much as going back maybe 10 years to the beginning of not the Putin war, but the creation of this conflict internally in Ukraine. So Prigozhin, for example, talks about corruption in the Donbass. That's going back a ways, but he's seen it. Prigozhin is powerful because he has rallied uh, disgruntled men. Uh, he has also uh, brought in prisoners. A lot of his army are former convicts. He speaks uh, fiercely, as those who check out my article, about the corruption of the elites. So there's a right-wing reactionary populism allied with a media of war bloggers, more extreme than the state media, that has given him power. I think what triggered this, 
and I'm continuing to do work on this, is July 1 was buried in news stories, but was the date when the private militias had to vow to uh, fold and serve under the official state military. And Prigozhin saw that as the end of his Wagner Group, private army, autonomy. And he made a move, which we saw this past weekend. And never forget, though, that he has not attacked Putin. He has attacked the incompetence, the corruption of the Russian military. And he has played lots of games with that, but he has not attacked Putin. The deal that has been struck doesn't seem tenable to me, that Lukashenko, the dictator of Belarus, very close to Putin, negotiated this so quickly. It's hard to see how Prigozhin, who's been called treasonous by Putin, stays in Belarus. There was the discussion he might go to Turkey. But at the moment, it stands there. Putin gave a five-minute speech this morning, basically saying it's under control, I believe. But there is obviously, if you have um, to depend on your generals more and see this unfolding over the last 24, 48 hours, there, it, you know, obviously issues, <laughs> cracks in the screen. I just want to, con- you know, conclude by saying that the danger I see in terms of the Ukraine war is, and the nuclear issue is, the danger of the West exploiting the turmoil. I mean, the idea that you have a disintegrating Russia larded with nuclear weapons, and perhaps a figure even more. Uh, you know, worse than Putin, if that's possible. So I think the idea now of the United States going to NATO July 11th and pushing more for this and more weapons is a, is very dangerous. How, how, just as an aside, uh, how dangerous? Do you see or, or are you concerned that we're on the precipice of a real big problem with the hot war going on around these nuclear reactors? Well, Dennis, I think we're already in a hot war. Sadly, the Cold War no longer applies. It's a proxy war. Um, I think, and this was kind of the line over the weekend, that command and control is secure, the weapons are secure, this doesn't affect them. Uh, You know, I was listening to the story about the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant. You've heard of it, of course. It's the largest nuclear generating plant in Europe. And the damn tragedy, we still don't know, responsibility we do know it's the largest environmental catastrophe in modern ukraine has impacted the reactor because of the water and the need for coolants so this could be a chernobyl i mean you do have fighting around it um and then you do have countries belarus appears to have been you know russia was playing weird stuff with belarus so i do think the nuclear issue is not to be sidelined. I think it is important. And anytime you have a nuclear armed country, we don't see disintegration, but that is, if it's exploited, it's dangerous. Now, in terms of uh, the uh, Prigozhin and his actions and We've also heard that he's concerned, and we've heard this from many sources, that those dying in the war in the Ukraine, Russians yeah. dying, are poor and working class people who don't, and the and the uh, richer classes and the oligarchy uh, are just sort of uh, sitting home and having dinner. Is this a problem? Is this part of what uh, you suppose sparked this response? You know, he has been 
very fiercely vocal about the incompetence and corruption and lambasting the elite's children. He says, you know, you sons of bitches, gather your kids, send them to war, and when you go to their funerals, then people will now say everything is fair. He talks about them drinking coffee while people are, are di- young men are dying. Listen, there's no question that this war is not popular. I think one of the other reasons Putin has these private militias with Wagner, the most populous, is he's frightened of a second, calling up a second conscription round. Uh, and it is the case that Prigozhin taps into this populism, as does Navalny, who's in prison on trial. But the fact that the, the army over the years has been looted, has been incompetent. This isn't to say that Prigozhin is a magical social justice figure by any measure, but he does speak to an anger that um, is still quiet. But if you travel outside of Moscow, St. Petersburg, or big cities, the graves are still fresh. Uh, there's an anger that is muted uh, about what's happening and the unfairness. And the, um, the he speaks to that, as do a few others. But um, it's, you know, it's, it's a real issue and has been. Interestingly, you know, Dennis, Putin's foreign policy has over the years been popular. What has not been really is for many of these ordinary people, his economic policies have truly favored oligarchs and the rich. And you have uh, pension issues. He increased pension age without any real discussion, and that was unpopular. And you do have protests uh, by nurses and teachers, and he's a flat taxer. (laughs) I mean, and then he's favored all these oligarchical institutions I will say one thing, though, that what's going to happen as we head toward possible reconstruction of Ukraine, that's down the road, but it's going to have to be a trillion-dollar exercise. And our oligarchs, Larry Fink of BlackRock, Blackstone people, are going in there. The companies are pouring in as they did in Russia post-Gorbachev, and that'll be something to witness because the elite corruption is not just in Russia – a colleague of mine, Anatole Levin of the uh, Quincy Institute, was in Ki- Kiev for about a week and in, I believe, Kharkov. And the cafes are full. You can get th- 23 kinds of coffee. This is, you know, something where the disruptive life of war has not interfered with a substantial number of people who, if they're not in a cafe in Moscow, may be jetting off to Dubai. So there is anger, and he channels it. But at the same time, he's militaristic he's i'll say one last thing your listeners discord leaks right remember they came out they showed a month ago there was a report about how Prigozhin was telling ukraine's military where to attack russian troops he was you know publicly speaking to ukraine's commanders asking them if they'd withdraw their soldiers from the area around bakhmut and he would give Kiev information on Russian troop positions. So he's playing a lot of games, a lot of games. Well, speaking of games and NATO and life and yeah. death games, I mean, the, I mean, this happens with the backdrop of a long time, uh, if you will, unstated U.S. policy, at least unstated publicly, that the idea here is to expand NATO to make a safer Europe. What does that proxy war really have to do with all of this? And, and I mean, don't we have to understand this in the context of that 
that larger uh, policy, if you will, pro-NATO policy? Absolutely. I was in contact with, um, no, I mean, what's happening, Dennis, we're facing a meeting, a NATO meeting, uh, July 11 through 12. It will be the end of the NATO-Russia Founding Act of May 1997, the burial of that. And what that means is there will be efforts to bring in Ukraine. The Biden administration, other European countries are resisting that. That I doubt that will happen. It'd be a violation of the NATO charter. There are other countries in the Baltics, some in Eastern Europe, who seek more protection from Russia due to aggression. On the other hand, it's up largely to expand NATO and also resources. But instead of fueling the escalation, it seems to me Germany, which has now placed 4,000 troops in I believe Ukraine or Vilnius, that instead of that, there's everything possible to revive mechanisms of cooperation, joint action, uh, support diplomatic initiatives by countries of the global south for an end to the Ukraine conflict, which, as I say, has mutated into a NATO proxy war. But we will see an action July 11, 12. You know, there, there, there will be efforts on the part of forces there, countries there, to say we need more NATO expansion and that original betrayal is particularly galling to see the Germans station 4,000 soldiers permanently in Lithuania um, it's a long history of course this is but, port- portrayed as a an invasion and a, an ongoing series of war crimes by Putin that's what the West yeah, no, thinks right Prigozhin is a war, by the way, he's, you know, a war criminal as well. I mean, he's been convicted yeah. for, I mean, <laughs> Lots it's kind of, war of criminals like, pick, to go pick, around, your poison, yeah. pick your poison. But um, <laughs> let's focus, the focus on Ukraine to emerge as okay. a democratic, secure in its nation and sovereignty country. If the war continues, there are places of negotiation Maybe not now, but on the other hand, I think in this country, there, there is a little more light about the fact that at least one has to prepare for negotiations while this counteroffensive is given a chance. Now, the counteroffensive, very hard to get a handle on, Dennis. I mean, the reporting is fog of war 2.0, but it's not clear that the counteroffensive is moving forward in any really productive way. But it is the case that there's no real movement at the moment on Russia's side, which launched this brutal war. And I think for Zelensky and Ukrainians, for the most part, it's become an existential struggle. And I think Zelensky has linked himself to the fate of the nation in a way that he doesn't see he could survive uh, without uh, with, ne- with negotiating an end to the conflict, which is terrible to say, but I think we're at that stage. But I do think do no harm you didn't give my cut line of my piece. It's, you know, be cautious uh, because yeah, the idea of exploiting Sorry about this, that. this situation. No, no, no. I mean, I listen. I'm, we all yeah. have these pretensions about decks and heads. But I think if I had to do a through line of my piece, I do recount the backdrop to much of this. But at the end, it's a kind of warning that the exploiting of a crisis with the nuclear issue, with not too many great forces on the scene. I mean, Prigozhin or military junta. I'm not sure it's in America's interest 
to start doing regime change in addition to fueling a NATO-U.S. proxy war. Does it not scare the living hell out of you to hear the way in which nuclear talk has become such loose talk? Totally. About totally. how the easy it is to say, could it, couldn't it, might it, might not? The normalization of nuclear weapons in the way that it's discussed in so many places, Dennis, is horrifying because normalization could lead to, you know, well, why not? It's a, it's, it's a measure, I think, of how dissociated we are from a reality that defined our world. But the thinking was at the end, when the Soviet Union was abolished, People didn't think you needed nukes, right? I mean, it was why the danger didn't exist anymore, when in fact it was more dangerous. And I would argue, submit, it's more dangerous today in many ways. Not because Putin, I don't think our leadership, I don't think Putin, he would lose any, any, any support he has in the global south, for example. But it's the miscalculation. It's the danger of, you know, that that keeps me up. I will say not to kind of do a popular culture move, but Dr. Strangelove is still something to watch every year. And my former colleague, yeah. Kai Bird, who was an editor at The Nation, wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Robert Oppenheimer, the nuclear scientist who was involved yes. with the crash. It's a big movie coming on the 21st of July. And I've seen tweets, people say, is this a real story? <laughs> um, but it's, you know, maybe it's a teachable moment. I don't know. But the idea that we normalize and the scandal, the shame and the obscenity that generals or, you know, people, pundits do that uh, is, I think, a media malpractice misservice in addition to having so many military people who sometimes see war in less romantic ways. But there's so many who are invested in these companies who come on and tell us things, but they're never it's never disclosed their conflict of interest, which, again, is a disservice misuse of a media that is supposed to belong to the people. I will say the media you know, I, thing, the one yeah. I've been going to Moscow for 40 years, I have many independent yes. media friends, others, civil society. There is, a, of course, a concern that you could see more repression coming out of this moment, that there's clamp down with media or uh, more listing of foreign enemies. So that's, un, you know, I don't know, because this seemed in retrospect, a very military-focused, didn't extend out that much to people. Hmm. And just if I could, would you just uh, give us your uh, take on the way in which the corporate media has confused the story, misled the people? And just what are uh, just a couple of your gripes about, about how this story and how Russia and this so-called, this war should have been reported. Your, your thoughts on this, because clearly yeah. the the corporate press doesn't do good on foreign policy. This, I think, so, is the most, the, the, the most powerful, dismaying example of media malpractice, the Ukraine issue, and prior to that, the Russiagate. Um, I'm not denying there was Russian interference, but I do believe we spent five years squandering a lot of our airwaves on discussing things that have been debunked, whether the steel dossier or the... I mentioned that because I think it contributed. Putin is an autocrat. On the other hand, his 
um, governing style is often kind of a prognosticate. He kind of dithers, and he doesn't like to make decisions, and he's more like a referee for fractious teams, which we see play out in some way in this. But my point is the Russiagate piece was so inflated, didn't do justice to the state of the economy or Comey or all of this. And we're now in a place where, of course, no one, of course, you know, you condemn the war, the launch of the war, but there were alternatives. There were alternative paths that were torpedoed, not taken by the U.S. government, by other forces that were working on an alternative to war. The war was launched, but before the war was launched, Dennis, the failure to have alternative views about what to do with Ukraine. It became militarized as so much of our foreign policy conversations become. It was failure to provide history and it was a lockdown on alternative voices. Someone once said, when everyone thinks the same, no one is thinking. So as Matt Taibbi put it, there was kind of intellectual no-fly zone or different opinion no-fly zone. And I think that yeah. is a dangerous, uh, dangerous, because we need to hear a range of views. Otherwise, you know, what is our democracy for? What is the marketplace of ideas? My colleague John Nichols has a good piece at thenation.com about the kind of media malpractice in the last 24, 48 hours. Now, there's a lot of news, to be fair, but there was so little attention paid. And then there is attention paid, but it's now turning to how can we take advantage of this as opposed to studying what alternatives are, which is why I wrote my piece. Do you think at this point there's a role for China to play and that the West will oh, yeah. let China play that role? Well, that is a – you asked two big questions. I think China's already Please, answer, please. I'd love you to respond a little bit because I, I – you know, Absolutely. I think – You know, all you hear in the corporate press is China – is China going to get into the war? Are they going to join Russia? No. Is it going to be a double war? Some stupid crap. Forgive me. No, no, But you no, know no, how no. Um, the level of foreign policy reporting is just ridiculous. No, and it's and – it, but even, you know, even worse, there's underlying it. A military mindset, right? It's like we're going to resolve these crises through military means, Taiwan, et cetera. I think it's interesting how you asked it, Dennis, because I don't think it's up to us right now how China emerges. What is happening in the big world is America is no longer number. I mean, it's a multipolar world, yeah. which sounds really boring. Right. The global south is uh, demanding its rights, which is one of the collateral fallouts of the war, which is interesting. China is a major power. It has been treated by the United States as like a third-rate power. And whippersnappers in the Biden administration have set back U.S.-Chinese relations. Congress is miserable. But I do think it is the issue of the century moving forward. China and Russia are natural partners, probably Russia being a junior partner. But it's kind of crazy that for years we tried to keep them apart. And now our policies have almost driven them together in different ways. But, you know, it's uh, it's going to be the fact that there's so little sanity about what U.S.-Russian relations, U.S.-Chinese relations could be is mind-boggling for some. I do think the corporations, for better or worse, are going to reassert themselves in terms of China because the economy 
You know, there's talk of de-dollarization, which is essentially right. saying the United States is not number one anymore. So I think all yes. of this is a world in change, and many people don't know how to orient themselves. And we see that in domestic politics. We see that in the world. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult, interesting, challenging period. But um, there are some people in Congress who are trying to think anew, well, think deeper. Uh, the Quincy Institute, which I'm involved with, it's worth checking out. Uh, the nation, we try to do as much as we can on the world. And we've covered, you know, Central America over the years. We're covering China quite a bit. But it is not pretty, the kind of bluster and the um, misunderstanding, in a way, of what a relationship could be between the United States and China. Anyway. That's unbelievable. Well, well, there's it's a lot a, more to say, but we thank you for spending the time you. with us. Uh, Katrina Vanden Heuvel writes a weekly column. Uh, actually, are you still writing that for The Post? I'm writing uh, it, okay, not weekly, I'm writing for The Nation weekly, and I hope people okay. will check out my column. But I thank you, Dennis, for giving me time. I will say I was, you know, you. I was on uh, NPR for a while, but got booted off because my views were too close to <laughs> someone. Anyway, it was Russian. <laughs> Uh, enough. Okay. Yeah. Thank you well, very I, much. You, my NPR story is I caught him. They literally told me that they purposely censored Martina Spada's poem on Mia Abu Jamal. Wow. I oh just, my God. you know, it's like they they pulled it, you know, and so I called up I, some technical producer picks up the phone and says, I'm just, what happened to this poem? I thought it was supposed to be on. He says, oh, no, they <laughs> decided to pull it. Oh, thank oh, you. And it became a big story. But, but any, and that's just a poem. Right? What kind of poem? I know. Anyway, Hi. okay. Right. Thank we, you for We thank you time. very much for spending the thank time, you. Katrina. Stay safe. Thank you. Okay. And um, that was the voice of Katrina Vandenhuvel. She is the uh, uh, editorial director of The Nation magazine and the publisher as well. Uh, and we thank her for the good information and spending time with us. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take a short break and we're going to come back and talk about Julian Assange. Stay with us. <laughs>
listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We uh, have... These airwaves, Vinny Stefano. he is the National Organizing Director of uh, the Assange Defense, I guess it's Assange Defense, uh, and they, guess what, are standing up uh, trying to help save the life of uh, Julian Assange, and I hope we're uh, okay. Are you with us, Vinny? Yes, I am. I am. I cut out there for a moment, and I've got to tell you, it broke my heart to be called on because... The interview you had with Katrina Vandenhovel was just incredible. She has such a wealth of knowledge. I really enjoyed that very, very much. I mean, I well, I'm glad you enjoy it. it glad good. you did. But uh, and of course, she represents uh, what we believe in as uh, real reporting, free speech, and the open flow of information—information information that life and death information that people need, for instance, to make decisions about whether they they want their government to go to war and kill other people. And uh, we are talking because you work with uh, the Assange defense uh, and uh, we care a lot about Julian Assange and the, and the incredibly courageous work he did as a publisher and a journalist making information available that helped to stop a war. So welcome and um, give us a, a little update. Uh, remind our audience where the situation is now. We know that the United States is salivating to extradite him to uh, the U.S. so that they can uh, kill him in jail um and they've already had plans to to kill him already so tell us about it well they did have plans to kill him you know if we were to bring george orwell or uh, franz kafka back from the dead and ask them to write the scenario we're watching here both of them would go well it's too orwellian or too kafka-esque for me because it is beyond belief what's happened to him But I think the thing that's most important for your listeners, there are many people, for whatever reason, because the press has two uh, positions, the mainstream media, not alternative media, and that is that they either ignore him or they repeat the same lies over and over and over again. But this is the issue of our times, perhaps of our nation, because it is not just that he is convicted, and if he comes back to the United States, he will most be assuredly be convicted in the Eastern District Court of Virginia. They have a 98.2% conviction rate, which is against the presumption of innocence to put in its head. But if your issue is a woman's right to choose or the climate or racial equality or Medicare for all or any of those things without a robust and free and open investigative press, those issues are all dead. And that is what they are after. The mainstream media is compliant But the New York Times problem that Obama used not to prosecute Julian a while ago because he realized that any publisher publishing the truth could be strung up by the exact same 1917 Espionage Act and shut down. Now, I don't worry about the New York Times, the Washington Post, or the Guardian, or even the Intercept, but KPFK, which I love and have been a listener sponsor since 1969, uh, uh, Consortium News, Graceback, uh, uh, Gray, uh, Gray Zone, or The Dissenter, any of the other alternative media, they would be in the crossers if he is prosecuted. Now, 
the case stands very close to a climactic denouement here. A single judge of a three-judge panel issued a three-page report that rebutted a 100-page report by Julian's lawyers against extradition. And part of his argument against it was, well, it was too detailed and too long, it was too busy, which strikes me as just incredible. Now, there is good news and there is bad news. Carolyn Kennedy went and visited with uh, the Australian PM. Both uh, parties were at that meeting, and they had open and frank discussions. And Anthony Albanese has spoken out, the Prime Minister of Australia, very strongly, not perhaps not strongly enough, but calling for Julian to be released. I would like to remind the audience that Julian is not a U.S. citizen. As a matter of fact, I found out that he's only been on U.S. soil for a total of four days about a decade and a half ago. And he is being tried for treason. Again, the idea of Kafka Esco Orwellian, how do you try someone who's not a citizen for treason? And I might add that your listeners would know that WikiLeaks in its entire lifespan has never had to issue a retraction, never had to issue an apology because they work from the government's own documents. John Kiriakou, another courageous whistleblower, when I was speaking with him uh, about a half a year ago, we were discussing the idea of classified documents, and he said something to me that seemed patently obvious on the face of it, but I'd never considered. He said, those are our documents. The government is not buildings in Washington or even the elected officials. It is the people, and those documents belong to the people. And if we're hiding the nuclear launch codes or we're hiding battle plans and them in battle, I can understand the need for secrecy. But the classification of documents, so particularly in the documents that Julian is being tried for, and there are only two tranches, the Iraq logs and the Afghan war logs, which showed war crimes being committed by U.S. forces in our name and our tax dollars, an incredibly underrated civilian casualty rate and death rate that the government was hiding from us and the most graphic piece of information that he exposed, which I think put the crosses in his back, was the collateral murder video. That showed an Apache gunship, an American Apache gunship with young soldiers in it, laughing and joking as if they were playing a video game, killing 11 unarmed civilians, including two Reuters reporters in a square. That would be one war crime. On top of that, they did something called a double tap, and that is as people were crawling away, laughing and joking, they shot them as well. And then when first responders showed up, which were really nothing more than friends and neighbors, they fired on them as well, injuring severely two children. The U.S. government kept the secret from Reuters, from the Iraqi government, and from the American people for more than two years, and it was only the courage of Julian and WikiLeaks that revealed that to the public so they could know how the war was going. And this is what they're prosecuting him for. I might add one other thing. When the prosecution began its case in London, the first statement they made was, let us be very clear, no one was injured or harmed by the revelations made by WikiLeaks. That's a statement that's stunning in hypocrisy, in its hypocrisy, because 
because we still hear repeatedly, well, he released unredacted documents and he caused harm and he caused operatives, spies or whatnot, injury and death when the exact opposite is true. And quite frankly, when it comes to redaction, if there was a gripe that the Guardian, particularly the Guardian had about Julian working with him that allowed him to earn a Pulitzer Prize, it was the glacial pace and obsessive compulsive nature that he put forward on redacting documents to make certain that they would cause no harm to individuals. That's right. And that's uh, an amazing part of the work that he did. He created a structure to protect whistleblowers, and that's uh, part of why the powers that be in various governments really despise him. And they despise him because he really did expose a war crime in, in the context of working with Chelsea Manning, if you will. Um, you're, you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Uh, we are speaking with Vinny Stefano. He works with the National Organizing uh, Committee to, uh, you know, for the defense of Julian Assange, Assange defense. Uh, and we're going to give you a chance to give out information about that. But but where where exactly does the case stand now? Is there is he is it essentially just a matter of them uh, bureaucratically filling out papers and shipping him off to the U.S. to face uh, uh, life in prison or worse? Where are we? Quite frankly, there are a couple of options that are available. I mean, his appeal against extradition could be heard by the high court. The two other judges that were on the high court panel could contradict the uh, uh, the jurists that called for the extradition to be denied or to be to move forward. Uh, he might have his repeal ejected, and he could be put in a plane to the United States. The plane could be stopped by an injunction from the European Court of Human Rights, which is the last stop for Julian Assange. Uh, the last, and there is also a very bizarre appeal if he is brought back to the United States that could take place. This happened to an individual, who, uh, an Australian citizen as well, who is incarcerated at Guantanamo for more than five years, but he got his release using something called the Alfred Plea. And this is a very odd plea. What it allows you to do is to plead guilty, but to still maintain your innocence. And the reason you can do that is just say, I know I'm going to be convicted. I believe I'm going to receive a grossly unfair trial. So generally what they do is they admit guilt to a, well, they, they plead guilty without admitting their guilt. Now, I think this is a very unlikely plea for Julian. Uh, because if he gets to the Eastern District Court of Virginia, that court sits at the hub of all the intelligence agencies. The NSA, the CIA, they're there, and they make up the jury pool. Now, I, I think what's happening here is that Julian really ruffled the feathers of the intelligence community. And I don't yeah, want to sound conspiratorial, yeah, but... Hey, this is what might be called the deep state. And I don't mean this is like the Illuminati or something. We have elections. We have senators and congressmen and vice presidents and presidents. And they come and they go based on the elections. But there are people that that function the government, our intelligence sources, and they're never elected and they're there all the time. Julian, with the Vault 7 release, when Mike Pompeo was the head of the CIA, embarrassed. 
the CIA. It showed their malfeasance, what they were doing. It was a revelation much like the one that the courageous Edward Snowden made about the rampant spying by the CIA on uh, U.S. citizens. It showed all kinds of nefarious activities. So I think the CIA, irrespective of who's in the White House or who our senators or congressmen are, are pushing very hard to have him come back here. And if he comes back, he will sit in a supermax prison, irrespective of the assurances he's been given in the same way Daniel Hale, the courageous Daniel Hale, was assured that he would not be in a supermax prison when he eventually was found guilty for releasing information about the inordinate high death count from the drone war first started, really amped up under Barack Obama. And he now sits in a supermax prison in a cell 23 hours a day. Julian, I might add, in Belmarsh Prison, is sitting in a cell 23 hours a day, except for the opportunity he has to meet with his legal staff or his family. And his, his, uh, his visits are very brief. Now, his birthday is July 3rd. Assange's defense is holding across the country and around the world banner drops. Banner drops. We have sent out hundreds of banners to people all over the United States. And on July 3rd, they're gonna be hanging over freeways and bridges and on buildings. And the statement is very simple. Journalism is not a crime. Free Assange. And I would like to remind your listeners, those are the words of Joe Biden, except for the Free Assange part. At the uh, White House uh, Correspondence Center, he said that emphatically. And the hypocrisy of that statement, that journalism is not a crime, and yet they're moving forward. I'm one of the most courageous and accurate journalists of our time. And make no mistake, Julian is a journalist. They're trying to say he's not, but he is. He's won multiple awards for journalism. He belongs to multiple journalistic organizations, particularly right. in Australia. Right, listen, I'm sorry, we're just about out of time, but why don't you mm -hmm. uh, tell us how people can get more information, more good information about what you're talking about, and if they want to stand up, what uh, you might like to see them do. Okay, a couple of things. First and foremost, you'll find it's not hard to believe, our website was packed on Saturday and has been shut down. But the place to go to get information work practically to get it back up is AssangeDefense.org. We have an action page there that you can write to President Biden, Merrick Garland, and uh, Anthony Blinken. Until that site is up, I would direct people to don't extradite Assange. Our partners in London, DEA, not the DEA we all know about, but don't extradite Assange. And I would, we will have a website up soon that you can enter your zip code in and you can find one of these banner drops around you and you can join those banner drops. We have four audiences for that. We have the people that see them, the press, the Biden administration, and most importantly, Julian Assange. And we're asking people right to Julian in prison. Uh, you can find his bell marshal, you could find it on our website, but unfortunately it's shut down. But if you simply uh, put in the Google bar, Julian in Belmarsh, you can get an address and find out how to write to him there. And I would ask everybody that has an arm, okay. has a pen to write with. All right. Well, we want to thank you for taking the time out uh, for reminding us uh, what's going on with one of uh, our most 
courageous journalist, uh, somebody, as you say, who has uh, really supported the work of some of the most uh, prominent mainstream uh, media outlets in the world. They've used his work, they won awards, and then they turned their back. We're going to leave it there. But just for now, you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Uh, take a short break, and we're going to go back and we're going to talk about those nuclear dangers uh, in Ukraine and uh, here in the United States where uh, uh, various politicians, Democrats, have uh, once again fallen in love with nuclear power. Stay with us. to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, having some trouble reaching Harvey Wasserman. He was going to talk to us more about some stuff going on uh, in elections as well as uh, nuke stuff, but we can't find him. So we'll keep looking, but uh, we're going to play for you the entirety of this uh, anthem that I wrote with uh, Francisco Herrera. It's an anthem we wrote for Julian Assange. We meant it as a birthday celebration. Uh, and it includes, it contains the uh, collateral murder uh, video. And uh, the point that Vinny didn't make that when we were talking about Assange, and I think a key aspect of the collateral murder documentary is the fact that you see the helicopter operators in the military before they open fire they 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 get permission to uh, oh 
looks like we <laughs> looks like we've got Harv. So, uh, how about this? We'll hold off on that. You're listening to Flashpoints. Uh, are you with us, Harvey? Of course I am. How you Terrific. doing, bro? It's great to hear you. Well, glad to have you with us. And listen, um, let's. I want to talk about two different things. There was a bit of exciting news actually in the uh, in the election. Um, uh, meeting today, the election protection meeting. We heard a little bit of a success story, right? Uh, that uh, about uh, gerrymandering and a little bit of a victory from the court. Yes, the, uh, the two of the justices. Um, I, I hesitate to call them justices, but two of the Supreme Court guys, uh, John Roberts, the <laughs> chief, and uh, Brett Kavanaugh, who's a, a real villain and his heroes in his hearings. Uh, overruled some bad gerrymandering state decisions in um, uh, Alabama and Louisiana. And they have actually mandated the creation of, all, of black districts in these two states where there were, you know, a grotesque underrepresentation of, uh, uh, of black people. And, and they've, they've reversed that. Now, there is a fear that they're gearing up to make themselves look a little better uh, in a forthcoming decision, the Moore decision, which could, in fact, turn the election of our presidents back to state legislatures. You know, Dennis, when the country was founded, state legislatures basically chose the, the president. And, um, and they're about to take all these right-wing gerrymandered legislatures and give them control of the Electoral College. We should hope they don't do that. These two decisions did mandate uh, black-dominated districts in these two southern states, and we're hoping it's going to carry over uh, to other ones. So, yes, that was that was a hopeful uh, outcome today. And that was uh, we learned that on the the election protection seminar that you guys uh, uh, put up every week, uh, which we're delighted to be a part of on Flashpoints. Incredibly important work that goes on every week in that uh, election protection seminar that uh, you provide. So if people want to learn more about what what we do every Monday and uh, the different uh, things we hear about in terms of fighting uh, for free and fair elections. Uh, um, we'd love to, to invite more people in. How can people join if they want to know more about what happens? Well, ask, it, the, the website is electionprotection2024.org. And thank you so much for joining us all the time, Dennis, and for mentioning. It's electionprotection2024.org, or you can just write me directly, solartopia at, at gmail.com. Solartopia at gmail.com is my personal and I will be glad to link you in with our election protection Zooms. We do election protection, and we also talk about uh, renewable energy and stopping nuclear power, uh, including this insane film uh, put out by Oliver Stone, uh, in which, by the way, Dennis, I am in. <laughs> but he, he put me in in a way to make me look bad. I, I, I think it's fine. And I'm, I'm, I'm challenging, I'm openly challenging Oliver Stone to debate me on nuclear power. I hope to God he does. Well, he's welcome uh, anytime uh, to join us and have a discussion, a frank discussion about uh, uh, nuclear power, nuclear weapons, the relationship and all that. Speaking of nuclear power and nuclear weapons and the relationship, uh, how would you rate 
the uh, situation around the war zone, uh, around the largest uh, series of nuclear reactors, uh, I guess, in Europe, if not the world? Well, Dennis, anybody that knows anything about nuclear power is totally terrified of what's going on uh, in the Russia-Ukraine war right now. Because you have six, as you mentioned, six nuclear power plants at Zaporizhia. Um, uh, it's the biggest nuclear station in Europe. It's twice as big, actually, as any in the United States. And um, uh, they, they've shut the reactors down, but they can't shut down the spent fuel pools. Uh, one of the one of the brilliant features of atomic energy is that you have to uh, forever cool the nuclear waste. And uh, they've got six fuel pools sitting in Zaporizhia. And if they lose water, we're screwed. I mean, it, it's you know they they will blow up. And they will. There's more radiation in the spent fuel pools than there is in the reactors, and um, uh, it, it'll be an apocalypse. I mean, all of Europe can be covered with radiation in a matter of days if, God forbid, something happens at these uh, plants. And I was watching the news today. They're all worried about Russia's nuclear weapons. Russia has over 5,000 nuclear warheads, more than any other country on Earth. But they're not talking about the um, uh, uh, nuclear power plants. Uh, the Russians actually do a better job of managing their weapons than they do their power plants. And the power plants are more dangerous. And here we are with six of them in a war zone. It would take one mortar shell, God forbid, to knock out the cooling system at a spent fuel pool and cause an apocalypse. You know, you don't need a missile. You don't need a nuclear warhead. All these atomic reactors are just sitting there waiting to go. And, and what, what would that trigger? What would happen? What happened was you would, um, if you if you if you drain the water out of a spent fuel pool, which would not be hard to do. It, it actually almost it, it did happen partially at Fukushima, and uh, through a miraculous uh, feat of bravery and genius and heroism, uh, the workers at Fukushima prevented the spent fuel pool at Unit Four from going totally dry, which would have caused the worst uh, radiation release in human history by far. Uh, way, way more. Well, actually, more radio, more radiation was actually released at Fukushima than at Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. Uh, but if this fuel pool at, at Unit Four had blown, um, you know, the whole Pacific Ocean would be just covered with radiation. I mean, we, our species would be on its way out way more rapidly than it seems to be anyway. So at Zaporizhia, you you have these six spent fuel pools. And it would take virtually nothing to, uh, you know, a couple of guys could go in and I don't want to give anybody ideas, you know, and, and uh, it would take nothing to, to drain uh, or to kill off the cooling system at a, at a sp uh, fuel pool. And once the fuel rods are exposed to, to the air, they will uh, ignite. And, um, you know, the rest is history because there's so much radiation residual in these, but, these fuel rods. But just to, right? couldn't you make the case also? Can you also make the case how this war has been going on now quite a while? There's been explosions everywhere. Wouldn't this demonstrate that even in the middle of a war zone, there's no meltdown? Hallelujah. All it takes is one death, and all it could, you know, uh, all, it, all, all the, it takes five minutes to, to do the damage that, that could result in, you know, a, a, a hundred thousand years of destruction. It, it, you know, we've been lucky. It's like the, the guy who jumps on a 20 off a 20-story building, and at the 10th floor says everything's great. I mean, you know, this is this is the situation, and that's why we don't 
build nuclear power plants. They, they are just way too dangerous. And, you know, why someone would run around the country saying we can fight global warming with atomic fires burning at 570 degrees Fahrenheit is beyond me. It's utterly insane. And they, they've all got a shot, starting with Diablo Canyon. We probably have the, uh, the distinction in California having the two most dangerous reactors uh, in the country, if not the Earth. And uh, they've got to be shut as soon as possible. It's amazing. Um, if what you say is true, if, if it's that dangerous... Uh, then we're always really living on the edge as long as we're using this kind of power, right? It's, it's absolutely true. And the, the, the uh, true irony is that solar and wind work so well. There's a big article out now about, you know, Texas is having this horrible heat wave. It's 113 degrees in parts of Texas today. And uh, the only thing that's saving the state is solar panels. Because the nuclear plants can't come anywhere close, and they're they're uh, very vulnerable. In fact, the irony, one of the ironies, is that nuclear reactors have to shut during global warming when they when they need the you know the power for air conditioning. They have to shut because the rivers are too hot to cool the reactors. It's a big problem in France and in some American reactors. And uh, but uh, Texas now has a, a big enough solar uh, array that, that the state is actually being carried on solar. <laughs> oh, God, that's too ridiculous. Uh, okay, we got to leave it there. We're, we're out of time. Um, Harv, well, Dennis, you're how do people, again, how do people follow you, your work, what's going on? Uh, come to, um, uh, write me directly, solartopia at gmail.com. My new book is The People's Spiral of U.S. History. And join me and Dennis uh, Mondays at the uh, Election Protection 2024.org. Beautiful. Thank you. That's the end of the show. We're out of time. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. And that wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.